but it's early out here. Uh, Nancy's not an early morning person. No, we both got up. Nobody should get up before the sun comes up. The mm -hmm. sun coming up is your clue it's time to get up. Nancy has a very strange ritual liturgy with a friend of hers <laughs> on Easter where Jesus and the Easter Bunny are having a conversation. They run into each other at the tomb. It's too early. It's too early, Bunny. Yeah, yeah. Go it's, back. It's very strange. Yeah, it doesn't always translate. No, it doesn't. San Angelo, are you kidding me? Oh my gosh. My mom's people are from San Angelo. She actually um, came out from San Angelo when she was 10 years old. That's crazy. Wow. Yep, I was asking Nancy one time about her grandmother, who we both loved, Gladys. Yeah, Gladys um, Boatwright. Gladys Boatwright, who is particularly happy that Nancy married a Baptist preacher. Oh my gosh, she fell in love with John. Um, uh, but I asked Nancy one time, if we were to ask Gladys, do you have any regrets? Do you think she'd have any? Because she was kind of Morning, of that Sherry. generation where um, they did not uh, reflect or obsess a lot over life circumstances and what would I have done differently. Yeah. And so Nancy said, no, she, I don't think she'd have any. And then she said, no, I think she would say she wished she'd moved to California earlier. Yeah. So Back in those her. days, West Texas was tough. Very tough. Oh, Carol. Oh, good to hear from you. Mm -hmm. Wow. <sighs> Fort Collins, Colorado. Man. Dayton, Ohio. Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, hi, Claudia. Hi, Sherry. Man, it was good to see you and all of the family. I had a family reunion. Um, with my cousin Sherry and 84 of us um, from my mom's side, the Hall side of the family in um, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And just a couple weeks ago. It was just a couple weeks ago and it was wonderful to be together. Yeah. Man. August in Wisconsin and no mosquitoes. I still can't figure out what was I'm going on there. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't seem right somehow. Me and the property we live on, we're, we're in a little... Cabana yeah. on this big property, and they yep. sent us a picture of a tarantula last night. And said, "When you come home, be sure you put your flashlight on to walk back to the cabana." I haven't seen the picture yet. Oh, it was on. That's yeah. Not, oh, not good. I not can't. Good. Uh, I would well, take I a snake before a tarantula. My um, hi to everybody that's watching on Facebook, also. Um, so I can't go look at the picture right now, but tarantula is exciting. We also, I have a little office right outside the garage, and um, there's black widow spiders in the garage. <laughs> From Brea, where the mosquitoes have migrated. <laughs> LA doesn't get mosquitoes, does it? I grew up there. Hey, Ree. Yeah. Steve Cuss. Oh, my God. Hey. Finally. We finally. were going to be on a podcast with Steve Cuss, the anxiety guru, but he canceled us for no reason at all. He, he said he was busy or had a like conflict a or something. And now we're trying to get back on, and who knows if it's going to happen or not. So. And Steve, the last couple churches I've been with, um, as soon as I mention the work we're mm -hmm. going to do out here in September, they're like, we're already signed up. We can't wait. So yep. Yep. that's going to be amazing. Yep, he's going to be out here at Westgate Church, I think, in September yeah. or something. Yeah. So, uh, oh, Murray Gossett from Amarillo, Texas, which Man, is not far from Texas San Angelo. We do. Murray and Jerry. Angie, hola. Murray is uh, a good friend of mine from Fuller Seminary days. I'll mention this and then we'll get started. And uh, he got married to Jerry and they had two kids and they were, I think, about 40 and thinking, should we have any more kids or not have any more kids? Kind of going back and forth, pray for you, help you get wisdom, decided to do it. Then they had triplets. So they went from Naturally two kids to five kids, only Texas, Oof. only Murray Gossett. Okay. Uh, this is live with good morning. Nancy and John. 
in the cabana, and we're so glad that you are here. Talking these days about the fact that we were made to count inside yeah. every one of us is a drive for significance. Um, we want to impact the world. We want things to be different because we're alive. That so easily goes into uh, ego and comparison and competitiveness. But uh, it's a really good thing to want your life to count. And God made us that way. So what we're going to talk about in particular today is this drive for significance and the work that we do. Um, faith and work. And how should faith inform our work is such a huge topic. And I love talking about that with Nancy because um, you resonate deeply with that. I do. I was 14 years old the summer I had a, f a first job, maybe even 13, um, at my dad's company. And I would go in with him for a couple of weeks and sit at a desk. And it was back in the days when they, IBM computers were just starting. So you had these cards with the little hanging chads on them. Mm -hmm. And I did something with them. I don't even remember what it was now. But after the end of two weeks, this lady stopped by my desk and handed me an envelope with a thin tissue paper window on it with my name. And I had no idea what it was. I didn't know if I was in trouble. So I, as a 13-year-old, I took that envelope and went into the bathroom and locked myself in the stall and opened it up. And it was a paycheck. Mm. It wasn't $5 from Mrs. Brown for watching her kids. It was a paycheck with a corporate logo on it and my name typed out. And I was just giddy that I got to do something with my dad that felt like it meant something for the company. I was still unclear on what I was doing. But that I got paid for it. Mm. And both my parents worked full time back in the 50s and the 60s, which was pretty unusual. And... Um, in, in the morning at the breakfast table, there was this air of anticipation. My mom was all dressed up for work. My dad had his aftershave on and was drinking coffee and reading the newspaper. And there was this sense of something great's going to happen. And so I would go to school and they would go to work. But I think it embedded me really early, a love for work. I was um, actually looking at books, thinking about what we're going to talk about today and looking through a book on spiritual disciplines. And it was kind of striking. A, a number of books like that, none of them included work. And, I'm um, telling you, I have a problem with those books on spiritual disciplines. So, well, I found one that I thought I would read a, a couple of paragraphs from. Okay. And this Holy is by names. Dallas so Willard, and it's called The Divine Conspiracy. Uh, and it's so called just, the... Sorry, I could just do this all day long. So just These are so names. fun to see, everybody. I know it is. It's, it's pretty hard to oh. not be looking okay, at right. that talk Please here. Please go ahead. Yep. Uh, so, in The Divine Conspiracy, page 285... Uh, Dallas has a section where he talks about what he calls the glory of my job. And we're all made to work. We're made to contribute value. Um, Genesis 2, it talks about how God puts the man in the garden to work and to care for it. And he uses two verbs that are used to talk about what the priests do in the temple. Mm. The idea is work is sacred. Yes. That um, uh, what the priest does in the temple uh, is actually a reflection of the significance of what we were intended yes. to do on the earth. Beautiful. And um, so that's part of why I love the phrase that Dallas talks about, the glory of my job. And everybody has a job. Whether you get a little envelope with a window and a paycheck or not, you might be a student yeah. and you're going to school and that's kind of your job right now. You might volunteer someplace, you might be a mom or a dad, home with kids, um, might be retired, whatever it is, you've got a job. Glory of my job. Dallas says, because he's talking about being an, an apprentice of Jesus, a disciple. He says, but then let us be as specific as possible. Consider just your job, the work you do to make a living. 
This is one of the clearest ways possible of focusing upon apprenticeship to Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus is, crucially, to be learning from Jesus how to do your job as Jesus himself would do it. The New Testament language for this is to do it in the name of Jesus. Sometimes you have to translate that kind of biblical language into what does it actually mean for us. Once you stop and think about it, you can see that not to find your job as a primary place of discipleship is to automatically exclude a major, if not most, of your waking hours from your life with him. It is to assume to run one of the largest areas of your interest or concern on your own or under the direction and instruction of people other than Jesus. But this is right where most professing Christians are left today with the prevailing view that discipleship is a special calling having to do chiefly with religious activities. And then he says, uh, but how exactly is one to make one's job a primary place of apprenticeship to Jesus? Not, we quickly say, by becoming the Christian nag in residence, the rigorous upholder of all propriety, the dead-eye critic of everyone else's behavior. And then he says positively, a gentle but firm non-cooperation with things everyone knows to be wrong, together with a sensitive, non-officious, non-intrusive, non-obsequious service to others, should be our usual overt manner. This should be combined with inward attitudes of constant prayer for whatever kind of activity our workplace requires and genuine love for everyone involved. What do you think? It's too long to tattoo, but Mm -hmm. it's worth (laughs) memorizing. um, Just when you were talking, I wrote down, what would it be like if all of us that were Christ followers showed up with a winsome, strong, gracious, and non-anxious presence Mm. in our workplace? Mm. Yeah. But taking seriously... That my work is my primary place of discipleship. Um, for myself, first of all, it's, you know, people, Christians will jump right away to how can I be an evangelist at my workplace? Well, that's great, but you got to start by being a great worker hmm. and yeah. learning about yourself, the ways that you're selfish or bold over people or don't show up when you should show up. So these, there's three, I think three categories when you think about your work, myself, how I work with others, Mm. and then how what I do helps shape culture. Mm. Um, I was a nurse many, many years ago, and uh, I remember, especially early on, I would pray in the way to work, on the way to work, uh, don't let me kill anybody today, tomorrow's fine, but not today. (laughs) You know, I'm just desperate to make sure I didn't make mistakes. But eventually I I did enough work there that I wound, wound my way down to working in the emergency room, which I loved. And we had a woman come in about 1130 at night one night and she was young. Her husband and two kids had started their weekend vacation a day ahead of her because she had to work and she was planning on going up the next day to join them in the mountains. And she came in at 1130 right when the shift is changing and I was getting ready to go to grad school in Chicago. So I had been working back to back shifts. I was tired. And somehow the doctor picked me to say, would you stay a few more minutes longer and check her in? And I, you know, been a Christian long enough to know you sit on the inside where nobody can see you. And on the outside, I said, I'd be glad to. So I went in and I took her vitals. I took her history. And I I just dismissively thought, she's got the flu. Why do you come to the ER at 1130 at night with the flu? I want to go home. So I drew some blood. I waited for the doctor. He came in. I thought, great, I get to go home. He said, why don't you wait 10 more minutes till the lab results come back and then you can go home. Great. And the whole time I was just pretty preoccupied with myself. Mm. 
and her lab results came back and what she had was not the flu, but she had fulminating leukemia. The woman never left the hospital. She was there for the next six weeks. And in that moment, um, I felt something appropriate to shame or guilt that was like God whispering to me, I, I, I had you here for a reason tonight and it was only gonna be a little while, but you kept thinking about yourself. I stayed with her mm. off the clock till two o'clock in the morning till her sister got there and visited her a couple times a week until she passed away. Met her husband, her kids, it was awful. But I missed an opportunity um, to be present because I was thinking about myself. And so that discipleship was, hey, you have a job to serve other people. Um, and I've never forgotten that night. Mm. And then the next thing is now, how do I treat other people? But it's not just about when can I share the gospel? It's like, what am I like as a team player? Mm. Uh, how do I treat other people? How do I involve them in decision making? Mm. How do I give them feedback, whether it's difficult or encouraging? Uh, how do I show up with others um, in a really winsome, but, but strong, full of integrity way? And that's where you could have a lot of impact over time on people seeing you make different choices. Um, you don't get cruel with people where a lot of times leaders do. And then culture, whatever you're doing, a hospital, a Starbucks, in some way, shape or form, a widget factory, um, you are part of shaping a culture. And so there's so many layers of showing up to work in the name of Jesus that I think are really powerful. I think you're the one that told me this, that um, culture gets set by the worst behaviors that leaders will tolerate sure. or not confront. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it also gets um, uh, developed by the heroes we tell, the heroes we create and the stories we tell. Mm. Like, what stories do we tell about people that are holding on to values that are good, whether they're believers or not? Um, it, you know, it's also interesting, people will say, you know, and of course, work can get misused. It can become too much of our identity. We can overwork for, out of our anxiety. But, and that's the message that we hear over and over mm -hmm. again, I think, in the church. Work is a really good thing. We were created to add value. Work happened before the fall. It's not a punishment. It's it's something to delight in and partner with God in. Um there are no stepping stone jobs. Mm. So while you're in a job you don't like for 20 different reasons, looking for that perfect job that fits your passion, um, you are called to be fully present in this job that does not satisfy you because your passion is not the most important thing in your job. It's great when your passion can intersect with the world's need, but you talk to people in third worlds, how do they answer that question? Mm. So how do I show up especially especially in a job that I don't see as a long-term fit for me and be a great worker. And as a nurse, a lot of people will tell me in churches, well, you know, by the time you get to the end of your life, people are only talking about their family and their friends and who they love. They don't talk about their work. That's just not true. <laughs> it's not true at all. Yeah. I had beautiful conversations with people on their deathbed that were school teachers and policemen. One guy that was a gas station owner and had wondered if he missed God's calling by mm. not being a priest 30 mm. years before. And he mm. wanted to talk about that. But oh. so many of them talked about the students they impacted and the meaning and significance of their work. Um, what? And then just the last thing I would say on that, um, I was listening to Kate Bowler recently. For those of mm. you that haven't heard of her, she's a 42-year-old associate professor at Duke University. Um, she's a Christian. She's an academic. She has a little child, a little boy, and a husband, and she has stage four colon cancer and has for four or five years. 
And she just shot a video of her going back to the classroom. And she talked about how um, meaning and significance in life is not just the people that we love and the dreams that we have. Part of our dream is the work that we do. And so here she is going back to work when a lot of people would say, you're, you've got a chronic, if not terminal condition. You should just stay home with your family all day long. And she said, that's a huge part of my life and my love. So is teaching. Um, and so to fall in love with your work, whether it satisfies you completely or not, is a good thing. So I was thinking about just looking at the names of people who I'm are here. I'm all the names. Uh, well, but I do have a question to I'm ask listening. you. So, yeah, I'm multitask. I'm yeah, yada yada yada. Oh my gosh, um, Karen. Uh, uh, of people who are working in organizations where they have difficult challenges, and I, I, there's amazing stories just here that I cannot even go into. But it reminded me. I had a conversation a couple of days ago. Uh, a good friend of ours, Gary Hamill. Kristen. Gary is a follower of Jesus and uh, a wonderful thinker about organizational life and leadership. And so, and he was saying, um, the United States was designed by geniuses so it could be run by idiots. And, you know, the idea was that, uh, folks created this system of checks and balances so that as much as possible, um, there could be people who were, um, operating in it and it would all be able to do. Okay. Uh, the, the, Democratic institutions would be robust enough that it didn't matter a whole lot who's in the White House or so. But he said, off with companies are the other way around. They're designed by idiots and only a genius can run them because it's so hard. And then what happens is a lot of times in organizations or in churches, um, the idea becomes everything rides or falls on the leader. And uh, uh, if you're not the great leader then you're not really in a place where you count. So, talk, and we were even talking about that with churches, how often with churches it becomes, uh, okay, we have to find a great leader. A and, great preacher. Oh, uh -huh, yeah. And Gary was saying um, the, the great wealth of churches that keeps going untapped and unleveraged is the human potential within yes. the church oh that gosh. doesn't get unleashed. Why don't we focus on that yes. instead of how do we get the great Messiah when, you know, we've already got the great Messiah. Yeah. And, and uh, that's unhealthy. Plus the amount of pressure that puts on that one person mm -hmm. that they may be completely unconscious of um, in the old Testament and Exodus, there's this great string of chapters where God is, reminding the people of all the beautiful things they've created by what they brought out of Egypt to be ready to build the tabernacle. And it says, when the time comes and we stop, um, you that have the purple hides, bring those. You that have the golden lamp sticks, bring those. And it just mentions hmm. beautiful thing after beautiful thing hmm. to create the temple. And then in, I think, Exodus 38, there's just this little verse that says, and the guy with the tent peg. <laughs> so there's some guy that's got a duffel bag with iron tent pegs thinking, I didn't get anything beautiful. I didn't get the stained glass windows. I got the tent pegs. This guy doesn't show up. None of the rest of it matters. Mm -hmm. And the kingdom value that unlocks the potential you're talking about is the engagement with and the empowerment of everybody to do the work together and feel valued. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, to feel valued. So if, if you're at work, do you know the name of the janitor? Do you know their story? Yeah, do you is, engage did you have a story about a doctor that told somebody yes. about that? Yes. So in the yeah. ER again, 
there was one doctor I worked with. He was a believer, but he didn't talk about it much. And he was just a great team leader. He just made us all feel a part of the team and not, I'm the doctor, you go do this. And in the ER, you have a core team, but when there's a code, you pull in people from radiology and laboratory and respiratory, and all of a sudden you have a team of people you may not know. You're looking at their name tag because you don't usually work with them. And you would think, boy, that's the hardest situation in which to build a cohesive team to work together. This doctor took delight in it. He would look at the name tags and use our names. And if there was a lull for a minute while we were waiting for labs to come back, he'd ask us, Nancy, what would you do if the pH is this? What if it's this? He would just teach when he could. We had a woman come in late one night, a young woman in her early 20s, and it took us a couple hours before we knew if we'd send her to the morgue or the ICU. And At one point, he stopped in the middle of the teaching and he just looked at us. He said, we are saving this young woman. Okay, okay, we'll do it. So at the end of the code, everybody's, you know, taking her upstairs with all these tubes, housekeeping is cleaning up, and the doctor's sitting back with the um, intern of the resident. And he's going through, when I put the chest tube in, why did I do it this way? And at that time, he's just uh, deepening the learning. And then at the end of the 20 minutes, and I'm, I'm the only one in the room with him, I'm finishing up some handwritten charting, because that's what you did back in those days. You wrote it with a pen. And then he said to the um, resident, did you notice the guy from housekeeping that came in? Hmm. And I looked at the resident. I could see the look on his face like, no, and why are, why are we having this conversation? They didn't care what that meant. No. That's not going to be in the test. And I just remember thinking, I'm done charting, and I'm going to keep doing this because I wouldn't <laughs> miss this conversation for the world. I knew, it. I knew something was coming. And he said, very dismissively, no. And so patiently, the doctor said, well, his name is Carlos. Um, and when all of housekeeping does their job down here, they're great. Carlos is the cream of the crop. And when he comes in... Everything gets turned around and cleaned up so we can keep working on people. Mm -hmm. Again, just this blank stare like, and your point is, he said, you know, when we need stuff, he brings it in. And then when he cleans it up, we can take the next patient in very quickly. He's a valuable member of our team. Nothing. So finally, the doctor says, Carlos's wife's name is Maria. They have four children. He named their names. He named their ages. Mm -hmm. He said they came up from Mexico a couple years ago. They sent a good deal of their salary home to Mexico. Mm -hmm. They live in an apartment in Santa Ana on some street. I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, he's been to their apartment. Wow. And then he said to the intern or the resident, he put his hand on his shoulder. He said, I see on the schedule next Tuesday we're scheduled to work again. Here's your assignment. You come ready on Tuesday to tell me something about Carlos I don't already know. Oh my gosh, this is brilliant leadership. This is, you will not rank people on the team. This is a team. Everybody's valuable. And if you don't pay attention to that, you won't pass my rotation in ER. Wow. I've never forgotten that night either. Wow. Yeah. No, it's such a reminder that um, from the big picture perspective, we're all doing a little tiny part in God's giant project. Yes. Um, you know, God's aim in human history is the creation of a community of loving persons mm -hmm. with himself uh, involved as a primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. So all the work that we do is contributing to the lives of yeah. so many people around us. And that's what makes yeah. it significant Absolutely. rather than how much money do we get paid or how difficult does it look? And you know, if you brought that thought to work with you every day, yeah. imagine how quickly the tone and tenure of at least the little area you work in would mm -hmm. change, mm -hmm. um, to bring joy and delight to the work you do to look at customer service as an opportunity to delight people and serve them. Um, so much can happen through our work that we completely neglect. I don't think I've ever asked you this question. Uh -oh. 
I hate it when you do that in front of people. Okay. I thought you loved it. You're supposed to be a peace, spontaneous. Come on, come on. Keep up. Uh, What was the time when you had a job where you were tempted to think, it doesn't matter, I'm not able to contribute, I'm not able to do it well, and what did you do? How did you respond to try to find God there? Super easy. So when I was in seminary... Who was the guy besides me that you dated that was most attractive? Oh, well, I've got an answer to that too. Super easy. That's from a different podcast. Um, So... I was in seminary, and one of my girlfriends in seminary, all six of us women back then, she worked as an administrator at a company in Santa Fe Springs that shipped the inside plastic coating on dishwashers. It was called Thermoclad. And she needed to go on vacation, and she wanted to know if I would take that job. I'm one of the least administrative, detailed persons you'd ever want to meet. I was horrible at it. It was back in the day of triplicate carbon copies, and I would type them up and, you know, if you make a mistake, you're done with that whole copy because you can't wipe that out through three copies. I would go into the bathroom and take 20 of those and jam them down in the trash can and put paper towels on top of them. And then when that got full, I would put them in my purse. I was so bad. I was so bad. And honestly, after a while, it became, God, just help me get through these two weeks and get the job done. I think there's still dishwashers sitting in China that I rerouted on the lading thing the wrong way. Um, but I, at first, I remember praying, help me be better at this. And it was like, I'm just not very good at this. So help me to get the job done and take these things home and throw them away and never say yes to something like that again. And then to be really nice to the guys in the back office. And we had a very playful banter conversation, many of whom did not speak much English, but just be playful and engaged with them. And, oh, the typing part was awful. Mm. I remember uh, a lot of people will have heard, some people not, of um, Brother Lawrence practicing the Mm. presence of God. And he actually wrote a fair bit about parts of his job. He was part of a monastic community, but like he would have to um, negotiate or trade for stuff. And he felt like he was really bad at it. And so... Uh, at first, that was very hard for him. And then his approach was kind of like, I know I'm not good at this, so I'll just ask God for help, do the best so that I can, good. depend on God, not beat myself up for it, and then enter into the next moment. Yeah. And it was like, that's a real simple way to try to very do simple. work together with God. Yeah. Just doesn't matter how good or bad I feel I'm at. So I'm just, let me help and then let it go. And even the vulnerability of saying to somebody at work, you know, I'm not very good at this. I need your help. Yeah. That yeah. really cool you know, pulls people together in a cohesive way. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, little prayers on the way to work in the car Mm. or on your way from your bedroom to zoom on your computer. (laughs) Um, you know, some people would talk about praying for your job and it'd be like this, be on your knees for half an hour. That's nothing wrong with that. But what also counts deeply are these little whisper prayers that happen during the day because they, Mm -hmm. they don't compartmentalize God and leave him during the prayer on your knees, but they take him through your whole day. And when there's times you need to apologize to somebody, mm. do it. Mm. Or, you know, give people feedback, whether it's difficult feedback or especially positive feedback. So few people get positive feedback yep. at work. <coughs> yeah, no, we were talking, I won't <clears throat> mention names, but somebody that's more in the church world side of stuff who did an apology recently. But it was kind of a, my intentions were good. And there was information I didn't have. And it was really much more self-justification and yeah. defending myself yeah. rather than um, um, I made a mistake. Here's what I did wrong. And uh, I think for myself, um, my intentions are always mixed. 
you know, my motives have so much bad in them that to ever try to say, understand doing, my intentions. Or were, I was just doing the best I could. Yeah, like, nobody's doing maybe, the best they can. Yeah. Um, in the work I do, my boss or the chairman of our board is one of the smartest people I've ever met. One of the most competent people I've ever met. Really? Yeah. Mm. And uh, for a couple of months, I just felt like there was something I needed to talk to him about, but I was just very nervous. And so I would try it and then think I would back out and I would write it down and think, how can I say this? And finally one day I said, Pat, um, I love my job. I get really great challenge from you. I don't ever get any encouragement from you. And I'm kind of a low maintenance gal. I don't need a lot, but none is probably too little. I just need a little bit more. And I was terrified and he didn't even breathe I say this because I feel like he's just spent time with God working on this he didn't breathe he said oh yeah I'm really bad at that he said my HR department tells me three times a week I need to do better at encouraging people I said three times a week he said oh Nancy that's down from ten times a week he just was so comfortable in his own skin he knew his strengths he equally knew and owned his weaknesses in a very lighthearted way that was playful and fun and made me realize I don't need to be afraid to ask for what I need sometimes. I love that story because on the one hand, he's not defensive and denying mm-hmm. his problem. On the other hand, he didn't get crushed and beat himself up oh, and say, no. I guess I'm in the wrong job. No. It's just like, my worth's not on the line. Nope. Yep, here's what I do well. Here's what I'm not yeah. good at at all. And I, I, yeah. yeah, and you know, maybe for a minute, because we've talked a lot about just the goodness of work and just to remind yourself even as you go into a job, you think, oh, someday I want a different job. That's mm. great. Keep working on that. In the meantime, today, show up with mm. that winsome, non-anxious presence. Yeah. Um, at the same time, your job, like anything, like your kids, your family, so many other things can become um, what we're rooted in, where we get our identity. Yeah. And yeah. it happens so unconsciously because you can get a kind, there's a little bit more control at work than there is at home or with people. And so we can gravitate to it for all kinds of reasons that feed our ego that aren't the best. And I think becoming aware for me, the um, analogy I use is, I always like to think that the roots of my soul are very deeply embedded in God. And then I realize, oh, I got a little root over here in my work and I got a little root over here in my adult children and all kinds of other things. And paying attention to what are the signs of that in my life and how do I gently lift those roots back up and try to help them find their way back to God. It's not a one and done thing. It probably, I probably do it 20 times a day, but it's um, how do I get to where Pat was, where his identity is, at least in that moment, in the right place where he could receive that and not, not feel judged by it or defensive with it. So thank you for joining us. Uh, Take a few moments now to think about what work you will be doing today and walk into it with a spirit of lightness, um, recognizing that you are not alone and you don't have to be the Christian nag in residence, um, but God will be with you and enable you to love the people that you're with and do work that's part of his project in the cosmos. And, um, And just be the person that shows up at work and doesn't engage in the gossip and tries to gently turn the conversation from just complaint, complaint, complaint to what's one thing you love about your job? Yeah. And see you next time. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Love you guys. Hey, Karen Brown.
Thanks for joining us here at becomenew.me. If you'd like to receive the daily emails that go along with each video, let us know at becomenew.me at gmail.com. Or if you want prayer, you can text us at 855-888-0444.